Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. John Zeroins, Professor in Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Emory University in Atlanta. Dr. X was a senior author of the paper titled, Localized Anterior Arthrofibrosis After ACL Soft Tissue Quadriceps Tendon Autograph is more common in patients who are female, have meniscus repair, and have grafts of larger diameter, which is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. X, and thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, this is great. Certainly, uh, we owe a lot of uh, debt to you for pushing the quadriceps autographed uh, envelope and giving us real data because it's an exciting graft and really appreciate you bringing the science. So tell us a little bit of background about how you got interested in the quad for the ACL. You know, it's interesting. I was at a, uh, in 2011, I think it was, we were at the Panther Symposium and uh, Freddie sat me next to John Fulkerson, and uh, John was showing me his data on the, um, on, on the quad tendon. And we started talking, and, and he said, yeah, it's a really nice graft. And you know, I asked him, how do you do it? And John says, well, you just kind of make an incision here and, and harvest it. And then I looked to the other side, and Dr. Shelton was there from Mississippi, and he's done a lot of quad tendons, just happened to be there. And I said, well, how do you harvest it? He said, well, I kind of make an incision. I look at it and just cut it. I had a bunch of questions, and they said, ah, don't worry about it. It just works. And so I got thinking about it, and we went home, and then we kind of started with uh, the basic science of it, you know, everything from histology over to, to gross anatomy. And then we figured out a way to, to, you know, that we can tell people how to harvest it, design the equipment to harvest it for fixation, and then we just started doing them. And after about my first 50, I talked to Freddie, and Freddie said, just do a whole bunch do a whole bunch that we got to know. And so that was, you know, I'm close to 2000 now. So and that's where, and we followed them. And that's where the genesis of the, you know, it wasn't my idea. There was a lot of people, you know, I've done this in the past, but Christian Fink over at Europe, who's a pit guy as well. We were at pit together doing fellowships and uh, he unbeknownst to me, had started working on it in Europe. So we kind of combined our data and techniques and this is where we are. Yeah, that's awesome. The studies that you've put out with histology and graft length certainly make a lot of us, when we first start these, more comfortable that we know uh, the length is just uh, pretty reliable based on, on those early studies, which, which are awesome. So has quadriceps become basically your graft of choice in most patients in 2023 at this point? Yeah, I think it has. And when I say most patients, my patients I worry most about are 14 to 22. Across the board, that's where we have the highest re-injury rate, all of us around the world. And the quad data, now that we, we just finished our, our, you know, about 700 cases of people, um, and we have 71 months uh, average follow-up, and it's, it's, when we compare it to the, the moon data, and we're almost exactly the same as the patella tendon. So, you know, it, it sounds good, but we're still all about an average of a 10% failure. And that's not great. Once you get past 22, then all of the autographs are good. And then once you get past 30, you know, whether it doesn't matter what you use. Those people all do very well. Now, interesting, I do a lot less allografts now than I used to. Between 30 and 50, I used to do a fair amount of allografts, but I really pick my people. And if they're an aggressive athlete, then I'll use a quad on them, you know, and they do great, especially the males. Um, they, they do they do great with that and have no problem whatsoever. You know, I still use allografts for people that don't do much. They just have an unstable knee and they fail conservative treatment. So it has changed my algorithm. I'm not using 
many hamstrings anymore, although I think that's a great graph for 30 and over as well. But I'm definitely not using hamstring in the younger people. And I use patella tendon um, when people want it, but that's usually my secondary graph. Before you uh, started doing all the quads, was hamstring or BTB more commonly used in those high-risk populations in your practice? Yeah, I used to do a lot of hamstrings and uh, probably 65, 70% hamstrings. I still did patella tendon in a lot of my contact athletes um, and my football players, and that is what I've replaced with the quad tendon. It's just it's a, it's a huge graft, and the big guys do even better with it. Now, what to use in a small female, you know, that's 16 years old, you know, I don't think any of us have a great answer for that one. Yeah, certainly risky. These soccer players that have, you know, deficiencies in their glutes and everything is just such a troublesome and difficult situation. Tell us a little bit about your your study, uh, getting back to the arthrofibrosis uh, risk, which, you know, we really didn't have any data on this graft or really too many studies looking at BTB or hamstrings. So this is a really interesting one. Well, if you look at it, it, what, what happens, we started looking at strength. And what we noticed is that the average female athlete had a 37% deficit at six months in LSI or peak torque to body weight. Average male had 27%. And that was true with our patella tendons too. So they didn't, they, we, there's a strength deficit, and the outliers are all people that we noticed had, had extension deficits. And by that, you know, it's either shy of full extension, but we also noticed that the people that had, you know, that had hyperextension on one side and, and got to just neutral on the other side. And it fits with what, you know, Chris Harney used to talk about that a long time ago, and he had a reoperation rate of 15%. We all thought, God, what's he doing? He must be doing something crazy. Well, you know, I think his, his litmus test for when to get in there and go after it was just, he had a, you know, hair trigger there. Don Shelbourne has talked about it for 30 years. And he's very aggressive at going in with, you know, three degrees of extension loss, he goes in. So then we started looking how well they did once we went in. And when we did go in, we saw Cyclops lesion almost on everyone, and they did have, you know, they had uh, some arthrophyte, you know, scar tissue around the patellofemoral joint, which is what Dick Stedman always talked about. So we go in there and just take a trocar, you know, go around the kneecap, and that just kind of loses that, loses that stuff up. Then we go down, take out the cyclops, maybe do a little superior heat ablation, kind of our superior notch velocity, but not, not cutting a bunch of bone. They get extension back, and immediately, immediately in post-op, they look at you and say, Hey, I, uh, I feel better. It's like someone took a vice off my knee. You put them back into PT. They get extension. You got to work hard on it, but they, they, they got it back and they, and they hold it. And then their strength starts skyrocketing up. So that's, that's where we started noticing. And then we went back with this paper and said, okay, what, what is our percentage? And we found it was, we found certain risk factors because we didn't know what they're going to be. They're definitely, you know, that younger female. Definitely, if you do something else inside their knee, like a meniscal repair, and then, you know, if you use a big graft, which Freddie's talked about, Shelbourne's talked about, make sure the graft matches. Now, the difference between this graft and a patella tendon is where a patella is 10 by 3.2. If you do a 10 millimeter graft, it's, it's 10 millimeter diameter. That's a big graft for the notch when, when, it, when the native ACL is skinny in that part of the knee. So, we, we, we started really, you know, it's very tempting to put a 10 millimeter graft in people 
And really, you want to be 8.5 to 9 in most of these people. And probably, you know, when you do kids, you want to be closer to 8. Yeah, that's a great summary. I think we were talking about before the podcast, especially uh, younger surgeons who uh, don't run into this too often when we first see our uh, first few cases like this. You know, certainly we want to wait and see if they're going to get better. But your experience and discussion, it's probably better for them getting their strength back to just bite the bullet in. Um, it's probably a much easier and quicker surgery rather than trimming out scar tissue for an hour and doing a posterior capsular release with the medial portal. If you get to them quickly, yeah. um, they kind of turn the corner. Is that what you have experienced? Ab- absolutely. And I'll tell you, for the younger surgeons, the most important thing I do is pre-op, I tell them, look, there's about 7% incidence of this and when I have the young females. And I say, look, this is a real possibility. We got to work super hard and be aggressive at extension. You got to get the PTs on board to really push it. You're not going to stretch these graphs. If you use knee braces, you got to make sure that they, they go into hyperextension because a lot of people put them in knee braces and then the, the person, you know, walk, you know, gimps around on this thing at, at, at 20 degrees or 10 degrees of flexion. It's going to be a problem. So we, we haven't, we don't use knee braces. We just, you put them on with crutches and say heel to toe walking and force an extension after day four. You know, the balance and everything will be there with the, with, with the crutches, and we do that until they can walk, Yeah, you know, two weeks or before, you know, not before. We, we let them off when they can walk without a, without a limp, but we keep them on for at least two weeks and really push it, and most of those people will, will keep their extension. If they don't, then I'm usually in there between, you know, I'll give them about six or eight weeks, and then I'll go in and do, and, and do a quick scope on them. Yeah, great advice. You know, the knee brace uh, makes us all feel better, but maybe it really restricts some of this uh, motion, like you're saying, these young females especially. You know, Bert Mendelbaum, you know, has never used knee braces just because in L.A. they couldn't get them to pay for them, insurance. Mm-hmm. And I stopped using them probably around 2000 when I did an ACL on my girlfriend, who's now my wife. So she breaks up with me, slows up. <laughs> I put a, uh, uh, I did a hamstring on her. She did fine. And then she shows up to my house a week later with no knee brace. And she, she goes, I, I hated that thing. No one ever wears them. And then I, she did fine. And, and I asked my patients, most people take them off. They don't like them. And, uh, you know, so I stopped using them. And, you know, my question to all these guys who've been around a while is when have you ever seen anyone fail in the first six weeks? You know, our KTs are all fine. I have 20 years worth of data. They don't fail then. So my thought is they don't stretch out, you know, I, I don't, I don't think they do much good at that point. Yeah, for sure. One thing I wanted you to tell all the listeners is that I've heard, you know, your great tips about uh, regaining that extension early on and what you tell the patients and uh, what you tell the therapist. So could you share all those pearls that you've realized, especially with the quad and uh, getting that knee moving so you don't have an extension deficit early on? Yeah, I think what I, I think it's important to teach people prehab, short arc quads, okay, and make sure they understand that when they're, when they're flat on the bed and they fire their quad that, and push the back of their knee down, that heel usually comes off the, the you know, the, the mat or the floor. And you got to get them to do it so they understand what it looks like pre-op. They have to un- understand what a prone hang is and how they relax their hamstrings and, and what we're looking at you know, what we're looking for. And then I make a video that I send them where I'm pushing down uh, on their tibial tubercle and pulling up on their, on their heel. So I push down one arm, pull up, and I make them feel what that feels like. It's not comfortable, but if they can work on that stuff beforehand, 
then they, they and get their motion back before you operate on them. Then afterwards, they understand what they got, you know, they understand what normal is, and now they work on it, and they'll push hard to get back there. But if their mom's too worried about doing it, if the therapist is, is not aggressive enough, the people are worried about causing a little bit of discomfort, then they got a problem. Right. Are, are you having people get motion from about zero to 120? Or, you know, there's been some discussion of maybe that's not necessary, but certainly that's the typical teaching. You mean before surgery? Yes, correct. Yeah, I think, you know, Stedman used to always say a cool knee, zero to 90, and full hyperextension. And I think the only thing I would add is I want that to be active. If they don't have a short arc quad before surgery, they're going to have trouble afterwards. So, you know, the uh, the Europeans, Bertrand Sonny Cote will talk about, he thinks it's really important to get that, that full flexion back too, because he said, you look, that you got to get that whole capsule stretched out, then they're going to do, then they're going to feel better and get do better afterwards. So, you know, I, I like that to be a really cool knee. And I think we're better off waiting a little bit before we jump in there at surgery. If you try to get there too fast, you're gonna you're you're gonna have issues after. Right. So your study looked at um the cyclops like you mentioned, and you really saw that in most cases. Have you seen more generalized arthrofibrosis much with the quad, or as you mentioned, it's really usually the cyclops that's that you've come in it's, contact with? Yeah, generalized stuff is probably the same incidence one one percent probably, or you know that we saw with any graph. And that's, that's a difficult problem, the true orthofibrosis, where you go in there and things just are socked down. That's pretty rare. What you'll see is you see that, that cyclops, cyclops, and it could either be based from the traditionally from the top of the notch, just kind of hanging in there. And sometimes it's also at, at, on the tibial side. And I think that the quad is so, it synovializes so well that if, you, if, if they don't get extension, it'll fill up. And then you start pushing it, and then kind of balls up on either the tibial side or off the notch. So I think it's kind of a, you know, I think true orthofibrosis is probably no different with any of these graphs because I think that's a genetic thing. But I'll tell you that the Cyclops, I, you know, I think I see it more with these. Although Don Shelbourne, you know, he says he, it'll happen with any graft. But I, maybe I'm just more, I study this more, so I'm more conscious of it. But if we if you give them if you don't get their extension they're going to form it and that's why you just got to go in there and clean it out if they don't get better right good lesson to get aggressive quickly you know you mentioned that which i think is really uh, important that the the possibility of why you get a cyclops lesion you know some people say oh the graft is so big which may be part of it but that passive extension you know maybe the quad takes a few days to wake up and and like you mentioned it may not be the graft itself it's from that lack of passive extension staying there. So I think that's a, a good concept for everyone to understand that which one ha happens first. Is it because the space is there and it's the synovium or is it the graft itself? So I think that's a great point you made. Right. That's the big unknown, right? And then the second thing we're quantifying now because we're getting serial MRIs on all of our people. We have a, a study going and the graft hypertrophies, all these graphs hypertrophy. And, you know, when does that start with the quad and how aggressive is it between zero and three months? And that's just a, you know, it's going to take looking at different, different volumes. We didn't know in this paper whether it's that, whether, you know, it's the loss of extension that leads to no firing, you know, weakness and firing of the quad, or do they have a weakness when firing the quad and they can't do that short arc quad, thus they get the, the cyclops. That's the unknown, the chicken and the egg thing that, that we don't really have proof of. But if you talk to people that have studied this, 
you know, we think it's if you can't get it straight, this thing's in a hypertrophy, you know, hypertrophy, and then you're going to end up with a cyclops, and then everything's downhill from there. Yeah, right. That makes a lot of sense. You know, with the hamstrings, especially the revisions, we've all obviously seen the tunnel widening. Since you've done so many of these and have done them longer than than most anyone, have you seen any tunnel widening uh, with quads, or what has been your experience that way? You know, I just got back from the ACL study group, and we talked to guys all around the world that are doing quads, and we're not seeing a lot of tunnel widening. Now, at uh, Ohio State, they're doing some really interesting stuff where when you get this massive tunnel widening, when you go in there on a revision, you know, you got to think infection, number one, like just a subclinical staph or, or, or some staph epidermis type uh, infection. So they've gone in and they cultured it. They didn't find much. Then they did DNA analysis, and it's like a, a like some sort of indolent infection. So when you see that tunnel widening, you know, they, they want you to go in, curette it out. Even if you put bone in there, mix it with vank or tobramycin and, and then go and, and do your, your single-stage revision. Watch it out, wash it out, put some tobramycin or, or vancomycin powder there. But you don't, you know, we see more of it with a hamstring that may not be related to infection, but it's because I think we're trying to figure out why. Maybe there's multiple loops, there's more motion, there's also synovium, more synovium in the uh, tunnels, and we, we just don't see that yet with the quads. But I don't, you know, you're not putting as much in either. So, may, you know, you can do sockets. You know, you're only drilling 20, 20 to 30 millimeters of the socket to put the quad in. It's not like when we were first doing a hamstring, you put a 30 millimeter, 40 millimeter tunnel. We, we, we aren't doing that. So I'm not sure we're comparing apples to apples. But short answer to your question is we're not seeing as much tunnel widening. Yeah, that's certainly have been an issue. So there was a study uh, I saw from Pitt here a few uh, years ago that, you know, whenever you're doing revisions, if you've taken a BTB in the past, and then are you thinking a quad or revision? Have you uh, done a lot of those quads on the ipsilateral knee after, say, a previous BTB? And what's been your experience uh, with the quad and the extensor mechanism taking a double hip? Do you use the same knee, or do you ever go contralateral? So I've done. A, we published on a hundred of those um, where we took a, a hundred, a hundred revisions using uh, using quads as a second graph. Now, some of those, those weren't all patella tendons, some were hamstring. When we looked at the patella tendons, there's no difference in, in strength at, at six months, whether it's a primary or whether we did a quad after a patella tendon. Now, at the, at the ACL study group, you know, obviously the PIT data and some of the other, um, the guys from Europe have showed no difference either. Now, the thing you got to be careful about is if you take a bone plug from the uh, on the, on the quad. So for an all soft tissue, it doesn't make any difference. But if you take a bone plug from both sides, then you know you, I'm I'm scared to do that. Most of the Europeans don't do that because they worry about fracture. Now that could be more theoretical. Guys taking big bone plugs from both sides obviously have had fractures. The Europeans take just a sliver. Christian Frink will take a sliver of the of the cortex when he's doing when he's using bone. But he doesn't like, after patella tendon, he'll take just soft tissue and, and maybe some periosteum. He never gets into bone because the fear is, is not the weakness. The fear is the fracture. Yeah, right, for sure. And that can be a devastating thing, which is, you know, certainly one of your positive in, in discussions that I've heard you, you discuss about, you know, not worrying about healing pain and fracture. And just to get on that uh, topic, tell us some of those things that, that I've heard you say before about what you like about the quad, say, versus... BTB regarding just uh, graft harvesting and sure. 
I'm not a zealot, so I mean, I like to tell a tenant it's a great graph. It's just, uh, you know, you're, you're sawing, you're hammering, and, you know, there's things that could go wrong with that. Now, I've never had a, you know, thank God, an interoperative fracture, but I've had a guy fracture his patella nine, you know, almost a year and nine months after we did, we, we, we harvested it, but it harvested right along that stress area of the, of the distal patella where, where, we, where we took it from. So I'm sure it was related. And we fixed him. He did fine. Actually played for the Giants afterwards. But it happened. And uh, the nice thing of the quad is we do an all soft tissue quad. You don't get frontal knee pain. You don't get numbness. It's it's much faster harvest. The scar is much better. And, and you get, you know, a bigger, thicker graph with more collagen for cross-sectional area. Now, I, I give that talk and these meetings saying this is better. But if the reality is, they're both great graphs. Their outcomes are, are almost identical. And I don't think there's anything wrong. If you do one, you can do the other one after. And uh, I just think for in my hands, I like it because it's a it's faster less and less morbidity when you're doing it. Outcomes-wise, I think it's, it's the same. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> Could you uh, tell us a little bit about some of the pearls regarding harvest technique that you published on and you know, the length of the graph that you typically take and full versus partial thickness, this talks I've heard sure. you, you give are, are awesome. So I'm sure everyone would love to hear that. So I don't think it matters whether you go longitudinal incision or horizontal. I switched to horizontal because the Europeans said it was better cosmesis. And I actually like it because most of your work is done distal on the graph. You don't have to, you don't have to do much up proximally. You got to you got to be really careful and diligent about whatever you use for harvesting. I think your distal two and a half centimeters of the graph need to be clean and cut. And if you haven't done very many, I like to go full thickness. Full thickness and have that nice 10, 10 millimeter to 9 millimeter tapered rectangle clean. Then you can put, a, a, you know, then if, you, if, you've, if you've cleaned and removed your fat from the scar, do a wide excision of the fat when you make your incision. And then you put Army Navy up and you can look up there and you'll see your, your rectus femoris and then your vastus lateralis and, and, and medialis. You can always see the medialis and the, and, the rec, and the rectus femoris. Then you know the direction that you need to harvest. Then, you know, that double blade knife works perfectly. You can use the Quad Pro, the, you know, the one that uh, is circumferential if you want. There's a myriad of ways to do it, whatever you're comfortable with, but you need to know the direction and you need to get that distal part figured out uh, in, in a nice two and a half centimeter um, circumferential clean segment of tendon. Whether you do it full thickness or partial thickness doesn't make any difference, but you got to close that defect if you're full thickness. Um, if it's a great big guy, so if you look at the sagittal uh, x-ray, and he's, you know, 10 to 12, 13 millimeters thick with some of these big D linemen are, then you want to go partial thickness because otherwise you get too big a graft. And you can always cut that graft down, but it's a big, big graft. But most people have that 7 to 8 millimeter. Just go full thickness, you know, uh, and there's a good one. of My uh, fellows just made a really good video that will be on arthroscopy techniques that shows how he closes it using, uh, you know, one of those rotator cuff self-retrieving uh, suture passers. And use an absorbable suture when you do that, because if you tie the knots, if you use a fiber wire or something that's uh, at the bond, they'll feel the knots and they won't like it. So um, those are kind of the, the main things. As far as the length, you never need more than seven centimeters. You got in trouble. I got in trouble in my second one. Freddie got in trouble in some of those early ones because we went eight, eight and a half centimeters. 
and then you're going to get into the rectus, and that's where all those bleeders come across. You can end up with a compartment syndrome, post-op hematomas. You've got to be really careful not to go too far proximal. So try to stay away from getting into the rectus. Yeah, great tips. Uh, we appreciate your experience in teaching us how to stay out of trouble. So I think, uh, you know, I've done full thickness as well, but I have, have run into that exact case, actually, a kid I grew up with that uh, I played baseball with. Is this big manual labor and he's had the thickest squad. So cutting that down is, is what I ended up doing. Well, every yeah. mistake you can make, I'm sure I've made. So um, I just kind of remember the mistakes I make and, and I'm sure there's something else I'm going to do, but I've made the mistakes. I write them down and hopefully I can prevent others from doing that. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, you mentioned um, the young group, you know, the young soccer player or whatever, 13 to 17 or 20 or 22. Tell us a little bit, it's a little off topic, but tell us, are you ever performing uh, LETs or, or any uh, lateral tenodeses in these high-risk, hyperlax, say, female young people with a quad prim primarily in 2023? I, I, I am. We don't have data to say it's necessary, but with the stability one um, study out of Canada, Al Getgood showed that he had a huge, with, those, with these type of people, you know, a huge decrease in failure rates when he did LET. In France, Sony Bredon uh, Gauthier showed that he had a big, you know, like a two or threefold decrease in, in failure rate when he um, applied a LET to the same or, you know, that type of operation to the same type of person. So I've been, you know, using the criteria. If someone comes in and they have bilateral injuries, it's a second operation in this age group. Or if they're if, if they're hyperlax, if they hyperextend, you know, seven to ten degrees, um, if they have other areas of laxity, they've had a bank cart, they have super loose shoulders. Those people, if they're valgus, or if they have um, like a, a lateral capsular injury uh, or sagun fracture. Those are the ones I'll, I'll add it to. And I'm getting better at that operation. Um, that operation can be a little tricky, but I think, uh, you know, once you, once you learn the, the tricks of that, it's pretty easy and, and, and it doesn't seem to have much morbidity. Around the world, no one's talking about great morbidity. It just probably doesn't need to be done on everyone, but on those, those scary people from 14 to 22, like I said, I'm 10% failure rate on average. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to pick the, ones out that I worry about and do it in the future. Right. I mean, there's been so many studies by, as you mentioned, Dr. Fu and yourself and others. And for this one ligament, we still have a lot to learn. So it's, you know, it's an exciting time to have to continue to have these discussions. Right. It seems like we're going yeah. back to stuff. Those aren't new operations, the LET and all right. that stuff. But it's interesting because, you know, um, when, when Houston did them and when, you know, guys did them in different parts of the world, they were doing that instead of an ACL, and they stabilized a lot of these knees. And then they kind of went and did them with an ACL, and then they kind of all stopped doing the extra articular once they had kind of the arthroscopic two-incision ACL. They kind of stopped doing it. And, you know, I think they threw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit, you know. I think they were good in some people, and I think we're going to come back and not do it on everyone, but I think we're going to find people that hopefully this will help decrease that failure rate. Yeah, stability too will certainly help us with that, which is exciting. You mentioned some of your uh, data that hasn't been published yet that I saw you present before about these young high-risk athletes, which we really have have uh, no data on in the quad. Tell us a little bit about that study that you mentioned previously and 
what else is on the horizon for you? You know, you're, uh, have such a great uh, team down there with so many surgeries. So tell us what else is coming out of your group regarding the quad. Well, th this is the most, this is, is, is going to be ready to publish. We have 670 people, I think, that fit this uh, demographic that are greater than two years and on average about 71 months post-op. And we know that, that we have about a 10% failure rate um, on average, guys and girls, uh, women and boys, women and men together um, in that age group. We know that the, in ours, the males had up to a 14% contralateral injury rate uh, at about average, about 30 months post-op, where the females were only about uh, 11 to 12%. So statistically different, and the males were higher, which we really don't know why. But again, this really goes along very closely with, with the moon data on patella tendons. I thought it was terrible at first, and I, I, Kurt Spindler sat down and looked at it all, and said, this is what we're finding. So, you know, that's exciting because now we have some, we, we have some good baseline data. We know who are our, our group that we worry, because when you read papers, you, know, you see an average age of 30 or 27, it doesn't do us much good. I want an average age of, you know, you know 17 or 18. Then I want that age group because that's the people we don't know how to solve this problem. So that's something that we're ready to publish now. And then we're also, uh, Greg Myers, who does a lot of the uh, um, human biomechanics, has come down to join us. And we opened up what's called the Sparks Center at our at Atlanta Falcons training facility. And it's basically we have MRIs, most advanced markerless um, biomechanics lab, and a lot of virtual, you know, machine learning and a lot of different training things for athletes using virtual reality. So we're going to get people, guy gets hurt, girl gets hurt, it's a higher level athlete from that age group. We get them up there, we scan their, their, their brain, we scan their both, uh, both legs. We're looking at contractility, firing in the brain when you contract your um, uh, quads, you know, cartilage sequences. ACL. Then at surgery, we get, you know, we're getting fluid, we're getting a cartilage biopsy and ACL biopsy. And then we repeat the um, MRI and then start our biomechanics testing at three months, six months, nine months, and, and then a year when we send them back. And we're, we're compiling a huge database and we, and we would do that every year going forward. So we're not only doing regular outcomes, but we're trying to get as much data as we can so we can go back and, and anyone who wants to mine it or has an idea can come in and mine our data. And it's taken a lot, you know, we're still, you know, fundraising to keep it, but we have enough to get started and do the first couple of years. But I think this is going to be a lot of really good data that will hopefully help answer a lot of the questions that you and I and everyone else have. Yeah, that's awesome. A lot of exciting things to come. I think, you know, those high level MRIs and the biomechanics are in the next step rather than just the outcome scores or, KT, like right. you mentioned. So congratulations on getting all that together. That's a, that's a load of work. Yeah, it's a lot. And Greg's been instrumental and has a bunch of brilliant PhDs, guys working and engineers working on the stuff. It's, it's a great group. And the one good thing to come out of COVID is we learned that you don't have to have those people in your building. You just have to get the data. Most of that stuff, these guys could be living, you know, in Australia and crunch the data and be part of your team. So it's really opened up, you know, our ability with to have that, you know, Zoom meetings and then people can work from anywhere and it's uh, it's made our lives easier in terms of research. So that's the one thing to go out of, come out of the pandemic that's positive. 
Right. And if you're in a different time zone like Australia, you can get that data being worked on 24 hours, 24 hours yeah. in Atlanta yeah. and yeah. across the world. Yeah. As, as we wrap up here, you know, as, as we talked about before we started, uh, Dr. Stedman just recently passed over the last few weeks. And uh, I was a resident at Pitt and then was lucky enough to do my fellowship there where you got to work with him and Dr. Hawkins. So I just wanted to ask if you could uh, share some thoughts about working with uh, the legend Dr. Stedman and, and kind of your memories. You know, it's kind of sad because you learn that once you leave orthopedics, people forget about you. And most residents who are listening to this probably don't even know who he was. Um, and I think, you know, he was, a, you know, he was, a, he was a good surgeon, a thought leader in terms of ACLs. And much of what he did was what we talked about tonight. He was very worried about orthofibrosis. He was very worried about being very gentle inside the knee and really addressing motion, early motion. As soon as they got hurt on the hill, they get them on, the, uh, they get them on bikes. And people ask, how did they operate so early without a bunch of problems? Well, they got, as soon as these people got hurt, they got them on the bike, they got them moving, and then they'd fix them out there, which is controversial, right? Because then they'd come back to Pittsburgh or Atlanta or wherever, and they'd be doing their rehab with you and never see these guys again. But interestingly, Stedman had such a bond with patients that they'd fly back and do, it's different than now. Most people aren't going to fly back to see the guys there, and they're great guys there. There's nothing wrong with them, but... They're not Stedman. At his time, there was only three or four guys in the world doing that. But they, you know, he and Russ Warren and, and, and Jimmy Andrews and, and Vernon Mueller, all these guys, they trained so many good surgeons. And now there's a lot of people that can do that stuff. But the coolest thing about Steady is the way he captured the patient in the room. You know, he'd sit there and he'd look at them and he made you feel like no one else was in the room. And he'd listen until the patient stopped talking. Okay. He'd sit down. And one day I said, hey, Steady, how, how, how could you do that? Because sometimes you get crazy people that just go on and on. He goes, well, I just look at them. And I'm, I think about earlier in the day when I'm hiking with my dog, Jack, and, and uh, what we saw on the mountain and all that. So I, I, it was always pretty funny. But, you know, he was being, you know, he said that a little in jest. But he always talked and he, he always listened before he talked. And, uh, and the patients loved him. So it was a great experience. But I probably learned more about in relationships with patients than I did about surgery from studies. Yeah, certainly a legend. I never got to operate with him, but just meeting him a few times and the stories people say about how uh, he would have different athletes or people stay at his house and, you know, who displaces kids from their rooms and they would do therapy right away. He'd be down there with the therapist, just uh, really cared more than, you know, really anyone. Yeah. Great guy. Going to be, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today and your results and sharing your insight and really pushing the envelope with this and giving us the science for this uh, new and exciting graft. And certainly for you, it's it's not new after doing 2000, but all of your pearls are much appreciated. And we look forward for uh, those more studies to come. So thank you so much, Dr. X. All right, Justin. Thanks for having me, buddy. Dr. X's article titled, Localized Anterior Arthrofibrosis After ACL Soft Tissue Quadriceps Tendon Autograft is more common in patients who are female, have meniscus repair, and have grass of larger diameter, is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal, and is available online. Thanks so much for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal.